Thank you for joining us today. We'll begin our study of the Gospel of Luke. We'll be discussing the announcement of the births of John the Baptist and Jesus and the tremendous faith of Jesus' mother Mary. So if you'll open up your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke chapter 1, we'll begin our lesson. Why don't we open with prayer? Father in heaven, I thank you again for this group, for this day, for the opportunity to gather together and study your word. We thank you for your word and we thank you for the Holy Spirit's presence here to lead our discussion. And we just ask that you teach us what we need to hear today. Continue to transform us through your word to become more Christ-like and to help us be the light to the rest of the world. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so today we are going to start the Gospel of Luke, a new book, and this is a long and detailed gospel, so we're going to be in Luke for quite some time. In fact, many of the chapters in Luke are longer than most of the other books, and so like today, I don't intend to even get through all of chapter one. We usually try to do a chapter each session, but we're not going to be able to do that when we're going through Luke, so we'll just kind of see how it goes. Let me give you a little background on Luke. The Gospel of Luke is the longest book in the New Testament, and so we're going to be here for a while. Part two of Luke is Acts. We've talked about this before when we were studying Acts. Luke was a doctor. He was a physician. Dr. Luke wrote both the Gospel of Luke as well as then the Acts of the Apostles. And when you put those two books together, that actually makes up one-fourth of the New Testament. We've been at this Bible study for a while, so you can see after we get through Luke, we will have covered a good bit of ground together here. There's not a lot known about Luke. His name is only mentioned, besides his gospel and Acts, his name is only mentioned three times in the New Testament. You can look at that in Colossians 4.14. It's also in 2 Timothy 4.11 and Philemon verse 24. And he's usually mentioned in those verses that I just mentioned. It's where Paul is actually mentioning that Luke is with him. So he traveled quite often with Luke on his missionary journeys. In fact, you may recall when we were studying Acts, when Luke first starts writing Acts, it's they, they, they. And then he starts saying we as he's describing some of the events that are taking place. So he was with Paul during some of his missionary journeys. Luke is actually the third of the three synoptic gospels. What does synoptic mean? It means when you take them all together, you have this common view. They were all three written about the same time. I think most people think Mark was probably the first gospel written, although there's good evidence that maybe Matthew was written even before Mark. But in any event, as we'll see, it's likely that both of those were written before Luke. And Luke talked to Mark and Matthew more than likely as some of the witnesses and some of the information that Luke gathered was from probably both of them. In fact, when Luke is mentioned in a couple of those verses that I mentioned, Mark is mentioned as well as being present with Paul. So it's likely that they were talking. Now, the Gospel of Luke, it's written to the Greeks. And the purpose of that was to give them assurance that Jesus was the Messiah. And Luke, being a doctor, he really takes his view. You know, each of these Gospels, they're written to a different audience, and they're written for a little different, well, it's a different perspective, you might say. And with Luke being a doctor, he's going to be looking at Jesus as a man. 
he's going to say, yeah, Jesus was the Messiah and 100% God, but clearly he was 100% man is sort of Luke's focus as a doctor. Being a physician, he's very detailed. There's a lot of detail in his gospel account. Some details that we don't see in some of the other gospels. In fact, he talks about some miracles as well as provides some parables that we don't see in some of the other gospels. So there's a lot in Luke, and I think we're going to enjoy going through that with him. It was written probably between 57 and 60 A.D., although some say it might have even been written as late as 70 A.D. It covers the period from just before John the Baptist's birth. So we know that Jesus was born somewhere between 6 and 4 B.C., so it would have been just prior to that because John the Baptist's birth was about six months before Jesus' birth, and we'll be seeing that in the very beginning of Luke. So it covers from that period to Jesus' ascension, so about 33 A.D. When you look at both Luke and then Acts together, it covers almost 60 years of time period. So Luke covered a lot of ground in both his gospel and then in Acts. So did Luke know Jesus today? Luke was not an apostle. All of Luke's information was from other witnesses. And he'll actually say that here in just a minute. And he was with people who were eyewitnesses. And that's where he gathered his information. But now remember, the Bible, it's the inspired word of God. So even though Luke is doing all this research and talking to people to try to compile the account, he's being led by the Holy Spirit. Okay, so it's still the Holy Spirit. It's God speaking. It's God's word through Luke. But Luke did all of this research and gathered information from other people who did see everything firsthand. So why don't we begin? We'll start out right here in chapter 1 of Luke, verse 1. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word have handed them down to us, it seemed fitting for me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning, to write it out to you in consecutive order, most excellent Theophilus, so that you might know the exact truth about the things you have been taught. So Luke right off the bat says, okay, this is what I'm doing and this is why I'm doing it. He's gone and he's talked to many people that he could find who were the eyewitnesses. That's why I say it's highly likely that he certainly spent time with Paul. So he talked to Paul a lot. He was a good friend of Paul's, traveled with him a lot. Luke may have even interviewed the mother Mary. You know, it doesn't say that, but Mary would have been around then. So he had lots of sources, lots of eyewitnesses. He was not an eyewitness himself, but he did go and talk to the people who were eyewitnesses as he compiled his account. You can see that where he's talking about these eyewitnesses and the things that were handed down to us from the people who actually were eyewitnesses of Jesus's time here. He says he investigated everything very carefully Remember, he's writing to the Greeks. That's his audience. And Greeks at the time, they were all about philosophy and very detailed-oriented. So that's who he's trying to write to, to these people who are kind of the thought leaders of the day. 
and he wants to be very careful in the way he goes about putting his account together. And he's doing it for this person named Theophilus. Now, we don't exactly know who this guy is. He's more than likely, with that kind of name, was a Greek himself. He was probably either a high-ranking government official or someone very influential, may have even been a friend of Luke's, may have paid the money so that Luke could gather this information. So he may have been the financial support behind Luke's ability to go and gather all this information. Obviously, though, still, let me make it very clear, this isn't just a research paper. He was being led by the Holy Spirit, and it's the Holy Spirit that is giving him the words. But it's all backed up by eyewitnesses. And the reason he did it is he wanted Theophilus and other Greeks to know the exact truth about the things that were being said about this man, Jesus, the Messiah. This can cause people some problems, so let me just touch on this real quick, and then we'll move on. He says he's writing it in consecutive order. You see that in verse 3? It is very systematic and logical the way he goes about it, but there are places where Luke will want to talk about a theme or some theology or something, and when he begins talking about those types of things, they're not always chronological because he wants to try to explain a theme or a point. So he doesn't say it's chronological. He says it's in consecutive order. So it's mainly chronological, but there are places where he'll want to develop a theme, and that means it's in consecutive order. It's time to now explain this theme. But the points in that theme, when you go look at some of the other Gospels, they might be in a different order. Okay, so I just wanted to clarify that when you go back and look in some of the other Gospels, you go, well, wait, he said it happened in a different sequence in one of the other Gospel writers. And I thought Luke said he was going to do it in consecutive order. Well, it's consecutive order in that it's laid out very systematically, you might say. So don't let that throw you. Okay, let's see. Let's pick up with verse five. So now he's going to go back and give a little history. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, Okay, let me talk about who is Herod. There are lots of Herods in the Bible. So which Herod is this? This is Herod the Great. He was not a Jew. He was actually a descendant of Esau. So he was an Edomite. And you remember who Esau was. That was the twin brother of Jacob, also the son of Isaac. So grandson of Abraham. This is who Herod the Great, that was who he descended from. And he was declared king of Judea by Octavius and by Anthony in 40 B.C. He was a ruthless ruler. I mean, he ended up murdering his wife and sons. He was a bad dude. But he also did some good things for the Jewish people. He allowed them to rebuild the temple, and he did do some good things. But generally, he was a pretty evil guy. And we'll read more about him as we continue the gospel. But I wanted you to know which Herod that is. So he's talking about in the days of Herod, in that period of time. So Luke is setting when is the time period that he's talking about here. He's saying during that time, there was a certain priest named Zacharias of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron. Remember, Aaron was Moses' brother, older brother, and he was of the tribe of the Levites. All the priests came from Aaron and from that tribe. So he had a wife, and her name was Elizabeth. 
At that time, by the way, this will make more sense. He's talking about this division that he's in. At that time, there were so many priests. There were lots and lots of priests at that time. So they were put into 24 divisions. You can go look at 1 Chronicles 24.4. And these thousands of priests were then put into these 24 divisions, which then had different responsibilities. And we're going to read about what Zacharias was up to at this time, what his duty was here in just a minute. So we're talking about Zacharias and his wife, Elizabeth. Now, don't confuse Zacharias with the prophet Zechariah. Zechariah is one of the Old Testament minor prophets. There's the book of Zechariah in the Old Testament, not the same people. And let me also point out that it's going to say that Zacharias and Elizabeth are very, very old. Okay, we don't know how old they are. They're going to be clearly past childbearing age. I mean, they might even be in the 80s or late 80s or 90s. We don't know how old, but they're well past childbearing age. And so let's read on. It says in verse 6, They were both, that's talking about Zacharias and Elizabeth, they were both righteous in the sight of God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and requirements of the Lord. So they were righteous in the sight of God. That doesn't mean they were without sin. It says they were walking in the commandments. So what that also means is when they did misstep, they'd go and sacrifice an animal for the forgiveness of their sins. But they were living an obedient life. They were living in obedience to God and doing what they thought God asked them to do. Make it clear, they were not without sin. But they were declared righteous by God's grace because they had faith. They were declared righteous because of their faith in God. It wasn't because of anything they did or earned. They knew they had to turn to God in repentance and faith to be forgiven of their sins. Verse 7, And they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and they were both advanced in years. In that culture, by the way, for a female to never have a child, people would really look down on that in the Jewish culture. It was viewed as God was punishing you for something. In other words, you must have a lot of sin in your life. There's something maybe unconfessed that God hasn't granted you a child. So there was this bad stigma on a female that had not been able to give birth to a child at that time. So Elizabeth had lived with this for a very long time. We're going to see they've been praying for a child for decades. Verse 8, now it came about while he, that's Zacharias, was performing his priestly service before God in the appointed order of his division. So he's in this division of priest. Verse 9, according to the custom of the priestly office, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. Let me explain a little bit about this. This was a once in a lifetime honor. Some commentators said that you would have this duty for about a week. This was very special to be honored that during this period of time, during this prayer period, that you would go in and you would burn the incense. Now, what were the incense for? While they would pray, they would light these incense. And it was kind of a symbol of, as the smoke would go up, of your prayers being lifted up to God. That's what the incense sort of was symbolic of. We're sending our prayers up to God. And it was a very high honor. You see how you were selected by lot. In other words, you know, it was sort of like a lottery system. Your straw was drawn. Your marble was drawn out of the bag. I don't know how they did it. But it also shows that God's also in charge of lots. Okay, because we're going to see God wanted Zacharias there that day 
Something's getting ready to happen, okay? And by the way, remember where we are. There has been no prophet since Malachi. So God has been quiet for 400 years. There's been no prophets anywhere, okay? And Zacharias is a priest. He knows that. So no prophecy. God's not talking to anybody. Now, God has been at work during that time, moving people around, getting things ready to go. But there has been no prophet hearing from God, no prophecy, no prophets, nothing written, nothing. God's essentially been silent working through prophets for over 400 years. And so here Zacharias is. He's pretty excited. He's got this lifetime opportunity. He's in the temple. What he would do is he would then come in and put incense at the altar twice each day. They would actually even wear bells on their shoes because there was this fear. The people outside wanted to make sure they could hear him moving around because if they quit hearing the bells, maybe he did something to blaspheme God and was struck dead. You know, this was a very serious thing. Let's continue on. So he's in doing the incense, and it says, verse 10, And the whole multitude of the people were in prayer outside at the hour of the incense offering. This is this hour of prayer. He's in lighting the incense. Everybody else, the Jewish people, are outside praying. And let's look what happens. And an angel of the Lord appeared to him, being Zacharias, standing to the right of the altar of incense. This isn't a vision. This isn't a dream. This is actually an angel appears right there at the altar. And let's also remember, where are we in the whole Jewish progression? They had moved from salvation by faith alone, which Abraham had. You can go back and look at that in Genesis 15, verse 6. And they had moved to the pursuit of salvation by this legalism. So keeping laws, doing these religious traditions, these ceremonies, these were all things that they thought would bring righteousness to them, that they could earn righteousness by doing all these things, having this prayer time, doing these various rituals. And they've been doing this for a long time. As I said, God hadn't communicated to them in over 400 years since Malachi. And yet Malachi had said that he was going to send a forerunner before the Messiah. Let's just look at that real quick. Hold your finger here in Luke and go over. You'll go past Matthew, go over to the left. And the last book of the Old Testament is Malachi. And let's look at Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. And it says, Behold, I'm going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me. And that's clear the way before Jesus Christ. This is prophecy. So there's going to be a messenger come before the Messiah. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. So the Jewish people were awaiting. They knew before the Messiah came, there would be this forerunner, this messenger who would come before the Messiah. All right. They were well aware of that. So here you've got Zacharias. He's in the temple. No prophets spoken. God hadn't spoken through the prophets in 400 years. All of a sudden, he's in doing his priestly duty. And here appears an angel. Let's see what happens. Verse 12. And Zacharias was troubled when he saw him, meaning the angel, and fear gripped him. 
yeah, I mean, God hadn't appeared or talked to anybody in over 400 years, and all of a sudden there's this angel standing there right next to him at the altar. So he is. He's terrified. I mean, it says fear. He's terrified, all right? What is going on? Verse 13, But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your petition has been heard. What petition? said that they've been without child, so he's been praying forever to have a child. And the angel says, your petition, your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you will give him the name John. All right? This isn't John the gospel writer. This is John the Baptist that he's referring to. By the way, the name John means the grace of God or that God is gracious. That's what that means. And Elizabeth, by the way, means covenant of God. So they've been praying forever for a son. They probably, at their age, maybe even given up hope, but they continued to pray for it. They knew they were well beyond childbearing years, as we saw in verse 7. It says in verse 14, And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord, and he will drink no wine or liquor, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb. Let me touch on a couple of things here. First of all, it says John the Baptist is going to be great. If you go back over and look at Matthew eleven eleven, let me just flip over there real quick. Even Jesus called John the Baptist great. He says in Matthew 11, verse 11, it says, this is Jesus talking. Truly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist. So he, he will be called great. The angel here is telling him that he will be great. This drinking no wine, the life of John the Baptist, he is going to be temperate. He's going to be self-controlled. Some of this is part of a Nazarite vow, which they wouldn't drink wine and liquor. And rather than being filled with that, he was going to be filled with the Holy Spirit, which is really interesting because, remember, Pentecost hasn't come. Remember, the Holy Spirit has been here from the beginning. Holy Spirit is the third person of the Holy Trinity. But in Old Testament times, the Holy Spirit, well, even up until Pentecost, the Holy Spirit was present, but never in anyone. The Holy Spirit was present, but didn't dwell within people like what happened after Pentecost when Jesus left and gave us the Holy Spirit, us as believers. But here we see that John the Baptist will be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb. This was something very new. Verse 16, and he will turn back many of the sons of Israel to the Lord their God. And it is he who will go as a forerunner before him in the spirit and power of Elijah. I'm going to show you that in just a second. To turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. So here he's basically saying, and Zacharias knows Malachi 3. So he's saying, oh, okay, so this is John the Baptist. He's going to be the forerunner of the Messiah. Let me also show you, go back over to Malachi. I don't want to spend too much time on this. I may pick it up next time. If you look at Malachi 4 and go to verse 5, it says, again, this is prophecy. Behold, I'm going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord, and he will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children 
in the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the land with a curse. Here we see this prophecy that he was going to come in the spirit and power of Elijah. He's going to be the forerunner. Let me also just show you one other prophecy of John the Baptist coming. If you flip over to Isaiah 40, Isaiah is go all the way back to the middle of the Old Testament. You'll find Psalms and Proverbs and then just start working your way to the right a little bit. You'll come to Isaiah. In Isaiah 40, verse 3, again, this is prophecy. It says, A voice is calling, clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness, make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. So again, this is prophecy back in Isaiah hundreds of years before outlining that this forerunner would come. And as we know, John the Baptist lived in the desert, lived in the wilderness, ate locust and honey and that type of thing. So another prophecy of John the Baptist. So let's see what Zacharias's reaction is to all this. Verse 18, And Zacharias said to the angel, How shall I know this for certain? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. So instead of being grateful for finally getting his prayer answered, he was very skeptical. And he's showing some distrust. He's showing some lack of faith. He clearly has doubt, even though he's been praying this. And that happens to us sometimes. We'll pray, but it's kind of like, okay, I'm going to pray for this, but I doubt God's going to really ever answer my prayer. And here he's been praying for decades and now he knows his wife's beyond childbearing years. And so why do you think God waited so long to answer their prayer? Here, God viewed them as righteous. We saw that in verse 6. Viewed them as righteous. Why did he wait this long to answer their prayer? Well, clearly, he wanted Elizabeth to get beyond childbearing years where it is clear to everyone that this is a miracle. Okay, there is no way she's having a baby but for God making this miracle happen. Okay, he wanted to wait until it's clear there's no way she could have had a child but for God intervening. Now, this is not an immaculate conception, you know, virgin birth or anything like that. This is God interacting in their lives and causing her to have the ability now to bear a child. And so Zacharias is showing some doubt here. And now let's see how the angel responds. Verse 19, And the angel answered and said to him, I am Gabriel, who stands in the presence of God, and I have been sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. So Gabriel is like, well, there's only two angels that are mentioned by name in the whole Bible. Gabriel's one, and Michael is the other. And Gabriel had actually appeared to Daniel over 500 years before. You can go look at that in Daniel 9.21. Gabriel is the angel that not only comes to announce the birth of John the Baptist, but we're going to see Gabriel is also the angel that will come and announce to Mary that she will have the Messiah through a virgin birth. So Gabriel is somebody, and he's saying, look, I'm Gabriel, all right? I'm here, right here, talking to you. I'm Gabriel, and I stand in the presence of God. And the reason I'm here, I'm here to give you good news. You shouldn't be doubting me, basically, is what he's saying. And he says, verse 20, And behold, so here's what's going to happen because of his doubt. And behold, you shall be silent and unable to speak until the day when these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which shall be fulfilled in their proper time. 
so this is all going on, and the people outside are in prayer. It's kind of taking a lot longer for the incense to be lit than normal. They're kind of wondering what the world is going on. And so here, verse 21, And the people were waiting for Zacharias and were wondering at his delay in the temple. They're kind of worrying, did something go wrong? Did he blaspheme God? Maybe he's not coming out. Verse 22, But when he, being Zacharias, came out, he was unable to speak to them. And they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple, and he kept making signs to them and remained mute. So he couldn't speak any longer. Verse 23, And it came about when the days of his priestly service were ended that he went back home. And after these days, Elizabeth, his wife, became pregnant, and she kept herself in seclusion for five months, saying, This is the way the Lord has dealt with me in the days when he looked with favor upon me to take away my disgrace among men. Remember, as I mentioned, people looked at her. She was childless beyond childbearing years. They looked at her with disgrace that God had judged her for some sin and she wasn't able to have a child. And now she's rejoicing because now God has looked with favor upon her. It's also, I think, kind of neat that we see here, obviously, they went back and Elizabeth and Zacharias had sex at a very old age because they couldn't have become pregnant without having done that. So God used Zacharias and Elizabeth to really show his grace. He opened up her womb to allow her to become pregnant and brought about this miracle. Let's pick back up on the story. Verse 26. Now in the sixth month, okay, so this is the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth. Okay, so Nazareth is a small village. It's about 75 to 100 miles north of Jerusalem. There's probably only a couple of hundred people who live there. It's land that is surrounded by Gentiles. It's interesting, I think this shows that Jesus is the Savior for all people who believe, not just the Jews, because God chose for this to happen in Nazareth as opposed to in Jerusalem, where all the Jews were. And so now Gabriel shows up again. He's sent by God to go to Nazareth. Verse 27, And he was sent to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph, of the descendants of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. So they're both descendants of David. This is important because, as we know the story, Joseph isn't going to be the actual father of Jesus. God is. But this also gives us the connection that we see they're both descendants of David. So it's through Joseph as his adopted father that he gains the legal right to David's throne. And we'll talk more about this in a couple of more chapters when we go through the genealogy. But Jesus has the right to David's throne, the legal right to David's throne through Joseph, his adopted father. But he has the actual lineage, the physical lineage right to David's throne through his mother Mary. So they're both from the line of David. And by the way, let me also point this out. Mary was probably only 12 or 13 years old at this point. That's sort of how things worked back then. And this betrothal, they were engaged. The engagement could last like up to a year. They would be engaged in that period of time was set that way in order to prove out 
that your wife was in fact a virgin. Because if you wait a year and there's still no child, there hadn't been any hanky-panky going on before you got engaged. So you knew the wife you were marrying was a virgin. And that's how they did it. So here we are. We've set up. Here's Mary. She's a virgin. She's engaged to Joseph. They're both descendants of David. Verse 28. And coming in, the angel said to Mary, Hail, favored one, the Lord is with you. But she, Mary, was greatly troubled at this statement and kept pondering what kind of salutation this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. She was a recipient of God's grace. He says, And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. Okay, a couple of things that I want to unpack here. First of all, I don't want to offend anybody. I think a lot of Protestants don't hold Mary in high enough regard, and some of that is the reaction to Catholics probably going a little too far. Some Catholics, I'm painting with broad brushes here, go too far in actually worshiping Mary. And let me give you a little background on why that is. I think we as Protestants ought to hold Mary in a lot higher regard than we do, not to pray to her. You look at what Mary's going through here. Here she is, a virgin, engaged. Now she's being told that she's going to have a child. In that culture, to be pregnant, I mean, you could be stoned, meaning like put to death for having sex outside of marriage while you were engaged. That was a terrible sin. And yet, here's Mary, we're going to see as we read on. She says, hey, whatever God's will is, I'm a bondservant of the Lord. I'm a slave, basically, to the Lord. She's very devout. She has great faith. And she says, if that's what God wants me to do, that's what I'll do. Now, the Catholic teaching, which doesn't come from the Bible, it comes from some popes. I'll give you one of them here in a minute. In fact, a lot of Catholics don't even understand this as the Catholic teaching. But the Catholic teaching is that when you hear immaculate conception, most people think that means that that was the miracle birth of Jesus born from Mary, a virgin. That's what most people think immaculate conception means. And immaculate conception means without sin. The Catholic teaching on immaculate conception is actually that Mary was born without sin. They want to have Jesus coming out of a sinless womb, okay? Now, there's nothing in the Bible about that. That is a pronouncement that was done by several popes. I have one right here. This was from Pope Pius IX in 1854, which gave the official statement of the doctrine of Immaculate Conception. And he says, The Blessed Virgin Mary, to have been from the very first instant of her conception, so even before birth, by a singular grace and privilege of Almighty God in view of the merits of Christ Jesus, the Savior of mankind, was preserved free from all stain of original sin. So that's where they get this, all right? And I'll show you a couple of verses that they point to to kind of say this is what is meant by that. And I'll spend some more time on this next time, but just let me real quickly, if you'll flip ahead, go over to verse 47, because after Mary hears all this, she says in verse 47, And my spirit has rejoiced 
in God my Savior, for he has regard for the humble state of his bond slave. I'll spend more time on this next time, but even Mary knew she needed a Savior. So how could Mary be without sin? She had sin, and she knew she needed a Savior and actually calls her son God my Savior. So I just wanted to clarify that a little bit. There are Catholics that now have taken it so far that say, pray to Mary, Mary intercedes for us. And there's no verses for that either. And I think I may just wait and show you that next time. But I wanted to at least point that out because there are different views of this immaculate conception and what it means and that type of thing. I didn't write this stuff, okay? I'm just telling you what's in the Bible. And so I wanted to point out where these differences come from and why it's viewed that way. And I'll leave that between you and God and just read the Bible. And I'm pointing out to you certainly what I read from reading the Bible. So he says, verse 31, And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. So similar to John the Baptist, Gabriel says, you're going to have a baby, he's going to be a son, and this is what you are to name him. We see here in verse 32 that the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. Remember, I was talking about this line of David. And when we look at Hebrews 1.3, Jesus is the exact representation of God, and he is the rightful heir to David's throne. And that's what is being referred to here And it says in verse 33, And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. You have to believe in him to be saved. You can see that in so many verses. John 8, 24 points that out. But there had been this Davidic covenant. You can go look at that in 2 Samuel 7, verses 12 through 16, where God had made this covenant with David and had promised a house, which was the temple, He had promised kingdom and a throne to the line of David. And so this is now being answered through Jesus. The name Jesus that Gabriel says that he is to be called, it is a derivative of the name Joshua. And you remember who Joshua was. He is who led the Israelites into the Holy Land from the wilderness. And so here Jesus, also a derivative of Joshua, the name, he will lead us out of the bondage of sin. The name also means God saves. Jesus is going to fulfill these covenants that God has made. Some will be fulfilled in his first coming. Other parts of the covenants will be fulfilled in his second coming. But Jesus would be the one that would lead us out of bondage and begin to fulfill these covenants that God had made and promised to us. Verse 34, And Mary said to the angel, How can this be since I am a virgin? So unlike Zacharias, Mary doesn't doubt that this is going to happen. She just doesn't understand how it could even be possible for a virgin to become pregnant. And so she's not doubting. She's just asking for an explanation. That's the difference. Verse 35, And the angel answered and said to her, This is what's going to happen. The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you, And for that reason, the holy offspring shall be called the Son of God. Okay, this is Dr. Luke. This is a doctor, and he's explaining this is how this happens. I know it doesn't seem right to the medical community. It seems impossible. How can this happen? Well, this is how it happens. This is how this is going to take place. 
The Holy Spirit is the original agent of all of creation. You can go back and look in Genesis 1-2. The Holy Spirit was moving over the waters. And he's going to be the agent to then create Jesus in Mary's womb. That's what we're seeing. That, that's what's going to happen. Verse 36. This is the angel Gabriel still talking. And behold, even your relative Elizabeth has also conceived a son in her old age. And she who was called barren is now in her sixth month. So Elizabeth and Mary are probably cousins through their mother. Mary was from the line of David, as we saw, and Elizabeth was from the line of Aaron. And so it was through their mothers that they are cousins. God is giving Mary this sign of Elizabeth's pregnancy at her old age to really like give her an anchor for her faith that God is still working miracles. Even though there's been no prophecy, God hasn't been speaking for over 400 years, God is at work, and he's worked through Elizabeth, her cousin, to give her a child at an advanced age, who is John the Baptist, who is going to be the forerunner for the Messiah, and now you're going to give birth to the Messiah. So God is very gracious in giving her this additional miracle, this other sign through Elizabeth as an anchor for her faith. Continuing in verse 37, angel Gabriel says, For nothing will be impossible with God. Just like God enabled Abraham and Sarah to have Isaac well past childbearing years, nothing's impossible with God. And so Mary's response in verse 38, she says, Behold, the bondslave of the Lord. She's saying, I'm a bondslave of the Lord. Be it done to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. So Mary humbly and obediently submits to the will of God, even though she knew it's going to cause a lot of ridicule and possibly even death for being pregnant outside of marriage. But she sees herself as a sinner. She needs a savior, as we saw. And calling herself a bond slave is actually very similar language that was used by Hannah in the Old Testament at another miraculous birth of Samuel, the last judge. You can go look in the book of Samuel. If you want to look at that, go look at 1 Samuel chapter 1, verses 10 through 11. So she's basically saying, look, I'm a sinner. I'm a bond slave of the Lord. Let it be done. I want to be an instrument of the Lord. This is tremendous faith that Mary had. And I think sometimes we overreact to what we see. Sometimes it actually even appears to be idol worship that we see elsewhere in the worship of Mary. And yet I think sometimes Protestants, we don't really appreciate what Mary allowed God to do through her. I mean, can you imagine being 13, 14 years old, being told you're going to be pregnant what do you tell your engaged husband to be? The scorn that she's going to have, the ridicule, and yet she's a willing, if that's what God's will is, I know I'm a virgin, but if that's what God wants to happen, I'm willing, let's go. I think we do well to sometimes think about Mary, the faith that she had to have. And it causes me to also wonder sometimes, what is God asking me to do in anything like that? that I'm just unwilling to do at that point in time, whatever it might be. Maybe it's to speak to somebody. Maybe it's to help somebody. And I'm too wrapped up in my own. It would be an inconvenience for me. You talk about an inconvenience. She's probably wondering, oh my gosh, now what's Joseph going to do? 
So when we come back next week, it's not in Luke's gospel. I'll show you a little bit looking at Joseph's reaction to all of this. And we'll spend some time then. We'll see the birth of John the Baptist. And we'll see what happens with Zacharias and his loss of his ability to talk. So let me shut it down there. I think the big takeaway that I have in reading what we've read today is just the tremendous faith that Mary had. We should just be so thankful. I mean, obviously, God and the Holy Spirit enabled her to have that kind of faith. But wow, what could the Holy Spirit do through us if we just allowed the Holy Spirit to work in us to give us the faith to trust God? and trust his plan, even though it looks like this is going to be really, really difficult. What thoughts might you have or questions? How do we know Mary's age? We kind of back into it. Again, that's speculation. I can't point to a verse in the Bible that says this is how old she was, but that is generally the age that Jewish young girls got married. Pledged. Yes. Okay. Good question. I think Luke is, I hate to say, one of my favorites, but it impacts me a lot because of the level of detail. Honestly, when I started Bible study years ago, I didn't even give that a second thought. I didn't know that. And then when I I see what Luke writes and how he writes, just the level of detail draws me in. A lot of detail in Luke, which makes it fun to study. And we're going to go at a pretty fast pace. But there's so much within Luke that you could take five verses and spend several weeks on. So I hope you enjoy it. We're going to be in it for a long time, sitting where we are right now. I'm doubtful we'll get through it by the end of the year. We'll see, but I don't think we will. So we're going to be here for a while. Just like this week, we didn't get through all chapter one. There's going to be lots of chapters that way. I know we all can't be here all the time, but when you do miss, you're going to have a difficult time because we're just going to jump right in where we left off. And it will be helpful to you, I think, if before we come in, hopefully some of you are doing this, but before we start our lesson, just go back and read the whole chapter. Next week, you know we're going to be in Luke 1. We're going to pick back up in verse 39. It would be helpful to you just before we get in here, the night before, read all of the chapter, and then let's come in and talk about it. I think you'll gain a whole lot more, particularly the way we're going to study Luke. I think it'll be helpful to you. There was a question on the phone. Well done. Thank you. I'll take that. (laughs) I'm glad I didn't overlook that. (laughs) Thank you for joining us today. I'd love to hear from you. If you have any questions or comments, you can reach out to me at LarryO'Donnell.com. You can also sign up to receive this podcast and my weekly blog by sending a text to 56316, type Larry in the text box, and hit send. I hope you'll join us next time as we continue our study.